Tēnā koutou no mai, hai to mai, welcome to Q&A, I'm Jack Tang. Tonight, big tobaccos push to convert smokers to vaping. Can we trust them? I would accept that they are not risk-free. They are not risk-free by what any What harm means. do they cause? Well, again, that's not known. Health Minister David Clark is here. Nearly 10,000 Kiwis die from cancer every year. Will his plan actually save lives? Then, the measles outbreak. There have been nearly a 1,000 cases since March. How did this deadly disease make a comeback and how much worse could it get? I can stand in the far corner of a large room and spread it to everybody in the room. Plus, I interview America's top cyber diplomat. He's been leading the US campaign to convince allies to ditch Huawei from having any part in the rollout of 5G mobile technology. We will reassess how we share information if there are deployed uh, untrusted vendors in 5G networks. That interview is coming up, but we start tonight with the ongoing debate over vaping and e-cigarettes. The smoking alternative being pushed by tobacco companies as a way to get smokers off traditional tobacco products. There's concern, not only about the unknown long-term health effects, but also that promoting vaping will entice a new generation of young people into addiction. You will no doubt have seen myriad advertisements for smoking alternatives. And while the Ministry of Health supports vaping as an alternative to normal smoking, the government is currently considering tighter regulations. I sat down with Piata Melbourne, the New Zealand communications manager for Philip Morris International, the biggest tobacco company in the world. And I asked her what's behind her company's big push on e-cigarettes. Yeah, well, firstly, um, it's the right thing to do. And secondly, it's, they've spent so much money, so much time, so much resource into trying to find the right product. Um, I think they, they need to go ahead with that. What are the long-term effects from using heated tobacco products as opposed to traditional cigarettes? Yeah, well, the problem with that is that they haven't been around long, long enough for us to know. So you can only do so much testing on these products. Um, so the, the testing that's been done so far has been shown to... You know, it shows that they're far less harmful and a much better alternative for those who want to carry that's on smoking cigarettes. That's the research that Philip Morris has, has commissioned? Uh, that's, yeah, that's the research from Philip Morris and quite a lot of other research that's been done around that. OK. The World Health Organisation says, quote, there's currently no evidence to demonstrate mm -hmm. that heated tobacco products are less harmful than conventional tobacco yes, products. Yes, they do say that. Um, and, you know, they're going to say that. I mean, a lot of people are going to criticise Philip Morris for their research because it's done by them, right? But the thing is, is that that research is out there and it's transparent for everybody to see. And it's been independently reviewed by at least uh, maybe about 30 independent reviews at the moment. So it's not like they've done research and trying to hide it from anyone. In fact, they're trying to get people to review it and see for themselves so what the, the facts is are. is the World Health Organisation wrong? I don't agree with what they're saying about that. I think... Um, I think it's easy to say, well, because Philip Morris did it, it's wrong. I th also think it's easy for people to say, if Philip Morris have done that, we're not interested in looking at it, which generally is what happens. Well, let's look at some different research. This is from uh, Dr Sugwinda Sohal from the University of Tasmania, yeah. the lead researcher in a study uh, for the European Lung Journal, which found that the Philip Mor Morris product, ECOS, the heat not burn product, was no less toxic to human lung cells than ordinary cigarettes. And I quote, it's not 90% safer, 
not at all. The figures in our data clearly show that. I guess the problem with that is that we've just had the Food and Drug Administration of the USA say that these products are now a better alternative for, for the smokers in the USA. So when you, when you put your products through such a robust system like the FDA, I mean, it's, it's f something like 5 million pages mm. submitted to them to go through all that science. And they're now saying, actually, it's OK now for you to market that product in our country. Like, you know, who's going to argue with that? I mean, a lot of people would argue with the FDA. I appreciate, yeah. though, that, that the evidence is contested at this stage yeah. and that there hasn't been a period with which we can have definitive evidence as to the long-term yeah. effects. Would you accept, at the very least, that these heated tobacco products cause some harm? I would accept that they are not risk-free. They are not risk-free by What any harm means. do they cause? Well, again, that's not known. So what they do is eliminate around 90 to 95 percent of the risk that you have in cigarettes, right? So they are not risk-free, and we have never said that they are risk-free. Um, they are also, so they also still contain nicotine, so they are not nicotine-free either. Mm. Um, so Which means they're addictive. They're addictive, and if you're out there and you don't smoke, you don't want to go anywhere near these products. Is Philip Morris targeting young people in New Zealand with these products? We're not targeting youth at all, at all. In fact, we're not, um, we're, we're very strict about keeping any of the marketing or advertising or making our products appeal to youth. That's not who we're after. Who we're after are the people who are already smoking, who just can't quit for one reason or another, and we think we've got a better alternative. So for why them. did you sponsor Fashion Week events in New Zealand last week? Oh, you, no, we didn't sponsor Fashion You did. I was at one, I was at, uh, I was at a Fashion Week event uh, last week for Stolen Girlfriends Club, and Ecos had a little ah. stand there and sponsored that show. So we didn't sponsor Fashion Week, but we were, so you sponsored individual designers at Fashion Week for their shows? We're in partnership with them, correct. That's a, I mean, that is more or less the same thing, isn't it? But they, they, no, well, it's, it's disingenuous to suggest that you're not sponsoring Fashion Week if you are sponsoring shows that are in Fashion Week. Well, no, Fashion Week, hang on, wait, there's Fashion Week, that's the, the company, the Fashion Week, and then these are designers who individually and independently decided that they were okay with being sponsored by... Well, well, the, po the point is that there are, there are maybe a thousand people there, yeah. the majority of them young, some of them with significant social influences, and you were marketing directly to them. No, but we weren't marketing directly to them. There were actually really strict rules about what, for instance, the models couldn't be over 25 years, uh, couldn't be, sorry, under 25 years. Well, I, so like I know for a fact that significant numbers of the models in that show were under 25 years of age. So, Jack, I can't go, I don't know. I'm just pointing out, though, that, that when oh, it comes no. to, to, to young people and, and promoting this new product to young people, we know that you are promoting um, no, this product promoting to, young to young people. Young OK, people. OK, we can contest that later. Are young, are, are young people who are non-smokers yeah. taking up e-cigarette products? Well, yes, there's always going to be people that will try these products, always. Just like there's people that try smokes, um, there's always going to be that risk there. Um, but I think the How important many? thing... How many would you uh, say? Like less than 1%. Really? What, less than 1% of, of people who are taking up e-cigarette products yeah. would otherwise not have been smoking? Yes. 
Is that, is that accurate? We, we, we've looked at um, some numbers, and, and this is a student-led study out of Wainui Amata High School, where students found 20% of students at their school were casual smokers, while 60% were casual vapors. Auckland Grammar's principal said half of his junior students owned a non-combustion product or had tried it. Half yeah. of his junior students. It's been described in some quarters as an epidemic in oh, our look, high school. That is not good news at all. That is not good news at all. And, I mean, again, we don't promote to youth. We don't want youth to come anywhere near these products. We don't want non-smokers to come anywhere near these products. It is not for them. It is for people who just can't give up cigarettes. But is it? How can you? How can you separate off those two things? How can you get people to move from cigarettes yeah. onto e-cigarette devices without attracting new people to these e-cigarette devices who otherwise wouldn't have been smoking in the first place? It's very tricky, actually. But what we have to remember is that we have to be able to communicate with smokers, right? And so the only way to do that at the moment is by um, going where they go to to get their cigarettes now. Now, at the moment, it's really, really difficult to communicate to smokers or anyone um, about all these other products that are out there on the market. Because we, we don't support just our products. We mm. support any alternative that's better than cigarettes. So the, the, the main concern, though, and I, I'm just going to keep coming back to this, is yeah. that we're going to attract so many more people to these addictive substances, and, and they may indeed prove to be less harmful yeah. than traditional cigarettes. But if you have three times as many vaping, people vaping that otherwise would have been using cigarettes, is that really any better off? Well, what... Is it better off just leaving all these smokers who are going to keep smoking cigarettes and just leave them to keep on doing that? Because that's why I'm here. I see so many people that have gone through all these smoke-free programs mm. and it's just not working for them. And that's really frustrating. I'm not a smoker, but... I have to put up with it. I'm around people that smoke all the time and I have to see it and how it damages them. Now, I don't like that mm. and we have to find a way to communicate to them. Yes, there are risks and we can't do, you know, we can't just make sure that no one gets yeah. it, but you have to, you have to follow, uh, follow and put in place some really strong regulations and really mm. strong guidelines to try and avoid that. There are always going to be risks. There are always going to be loopholes mm. where people can get access to this, but we can't we don't have this. This is not the silver bullet. Well, what about, though, in 20 years? What happens if in 20 years, all of yeah. a sudden, the scientists go, the long-term data is in, these e-cigarettes are really damaging to people's health, and we have so many more people using these things than we're smoking? Yeah. Well, then we won't sell them anymore, will we? But it's too late at that point. But it's too, la but it's too late now to help these smokers. You know, we, what do we do? Do we just keep letting them smoke cigarettes? So, no. so what would you like to see in terms of regulation? What would be appropriate? To be able to communicate to smokers, just directly to smokers, to be able to, to allow that to happen, mm. to give them an incentive to switch to better alternatives, but most, mostly to be able to educate them on what's out there, on the alternatives, because at the moment there's very little information out there for the smokers. So, so you should be able to advertise? Uh, no, I wouldn't agree with advertising, but we have to be able to communicate and educate. Advertising is a different... What would be the best way to do that? Look, just being able to openly go out there and approach businesses mm. and openly go out there and and find a way to just target smokers. I mean, we, we, R18. We know that places. we know that um, Philip Morris has 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 targeted 
um, vulnerable groups as it is. Uh, that have been active, active in, in, in Whare, in going to um, some low socioeconomic Jack, communities. Auckland Action Against it. Poverty the says that you've approached them. The problem I have with that them. statement is that I'm here at the company. Now, if that happened on my watch, those lower income and those demographics mm. that have been talked about, that's my demographic. Mm. There is no way that I would let anyone come and target my people and exploit them. What I would allow is for people to go in and educate them and inform them, but to exploit them in the way that's been talked about, no, no way. Tell me about why you took the job. Tell me well, about that. Because I, for years, I've been a journalist and mm. reported on the same stats year and year and year again. Um, and those smoking stats just weren't going down. And that, I have three pet hates, right? Mm. Traffic, flies and smoking. Now, I can't do anything about the flies, but the traffic and smoking, I might be able to help. And I finally saw a plan, albeit from a tobacco company, that's really robust and really mm. ballsy that... I think works. Yes, it comes from a tobacco company, and that didn't sit well with me at first, but at the end of the day, um, it's a really good strategy. They're trying to do something um, that they've never done before, and I wanted to support that. It's a question of trust, though, isn't it? And, it is. And, and you know, if, if, you take a, if you take a broad historical look at Philip Morris, this is a, a company that has produced products that has contributed to the death of millions of people, including yeah. the, the death of 5,000 New Zealanders a year. Yeah. We know that Philip Morris has a history of hiding scientific studies that linked yeah. smoking with cancer. Yeah. So why should we trust you? Well, no one's asking you to trust us. That's exactly what you're asking. No, we're asking you to look at the information, actually, and we're asking you to just see it for what it is. Take away the Philip Morris brand and who's it from. Let's just look at the facts and then, then go from there. So it's not a matter... No one's going to trust... I mean, I didn't trust the company when I first came in, you know? I don't want to be associated mm. with Philip Morris. But um, and as a Juno, you learn to just put away all your assumptions and all your preconceptions of anything and look at the facts. And I was able to do that when I saw their plan. And so I'm quite comfortable, even though I'm not, I'm not saying they didn't do bad things in the past. Let's acknowledge that they did that. They acknowledge that they did that. But, you know, I'm from Tuhoi and me and my people, we were able mm -hmm. to reconcile with the cops after they went and raided Tewiriwera on this under this ter terrorist suppression act and arrest all these people and come out with nothing. Now, we're able to reconcile with the police, so I think I can find a way to reconcile with a company that are willing to self-implode their cigarette business and try and find better ways to move forward. That is Piata Melbourne. An enlightening interview, I'm sure you'll agree. I'll ask Health Minister David Clark what he thinks about vaping after the break. Does he consider it safe? Plus, my interview with the US State Department, America's warning to New Zealand if Huawei is part of our 5G upgrade. But next, the current measles outbreak is the worst in 22 years. It's easy to pin the blame on anti-vaxxing parents, but they're not the only group that needs convincing about immunisation. This is about people who've had a lot of fears and concerns, they've heard stories, they're worried, social media and the internet ramp up people's fears and the key is the loss of the relationship with a trusted healthcare provider. Kia ora te whanau, welcome back. 
Health officials are expecting the number of measles infections to, to rise over the next couple of weeks. There have so far been 963 confirmed cases since March, most of them in Auckland, where the current outbreak is centred. There's been a renewed drive to vaccinate in communities where immunisation rates are low. But to understand why, Fina Owen spoke to the head of the Immunisation Advisory Centre. Did you predict that this would happen? Yes, we were expecting something like this to happen because we've known that there are gaps in immunity across the New Zealand population. So where are the gaps? Do we blame it all on the anti-vaxxers? I'm Trisha Cheel and I've been bringing vaxxed to as many places in Northland as I possibly can. Northland has the lowest immunisation rate in the country, along with the West Coast. There are also micro-areas of low immunisation, areas like Coromandel, Hokianga, Titarangi. We find there are communities of people who do not trust healthcare authority advice or have had bad experiences, and they tend to group together. So we often find pockets around the country of communities who are less confident about receiving vaccine. The West Coast stats are somewhat skewed because the Gloria Vale community, with 35 births a year, don't vaccinate. But in Northland's case, and areas like South Auckland, there are other factors at play. What we're seeing in New Zealand at the moment is severe poverty, severe deprivation has got worse in the last few years. And we have seen a drop-off in people being able to obtain immunisation in a timely manner for their children. It's very hard for many of these families. If you think of all the other stresses going on in areas of high deprivation where they may not have insecure housing, they're moving around a lot, they may not have a relationship with a regular general practice, and then the vaccine may not be available. Nine-year-old Annalise Stevens has measles and is feeling miserable. At the time of our last big measles outbreak 22 years ago, for the whole vaccination programme, under 60% of children were immunised. Our immunisation system wasn't up to scratch. Now, alongside that, in the early 90s, came along the scare with MMR that one doctor in England had proposed it could be linked to autism. The parents understand it, they get it, because they've lived it. Wakesfield research, they contend, has been a fraud. Now, the science has completely debunked that theory but it's got stuck in the national psyche. While the more extreme end of the anti-vax movement makes up around 25% of the resistance to immunisation, Dr Turner says the real worry is another, much larger cohort. It's called vaccine hesitancy. This is about people who have had a lot of fears and concerns, they've heard stories, they're worried. Social media and the internet ramp up people's fears. And the key is the loss of the relationship with a trusted healthcare provider. The measles response right now is focused on the area of biggest outbreak, counties Manukau. But where is it likely to go? We could predict that these viruses will spread to many different parts of the country, particularly where people gather in big groups. Don't forget that measles is one of the most highly infectious diseases in the world. I can stand in the far corner of a large room and spread it to everybody in the room. So why not make vaccination against measles mandatory in New Zealand? The mandatory policies alone are not necessarily the answer. So you don't think it's the answer for New Zealand? I don't think straight mandation is the answer. I think making an environment where you have to make a choice with support and understanding. Watching that is Health Minister David Clark. Tenakwe, welcome to Q&A. Kia ora. Do you agree with that? We shouldn't make immunisations mandatory in New Zealand? Indeed. Uh, we need to support people to uh, get vaccinated. We know it's a simple, scientifically proven cure. 
uh, to deadly diseases, so we need to encourage people uh, as strongly as we can. It's not working though, and it's astonishing to consider the different numbers across DHBs in New Zealand. You have 64% of people immunised in Northland versus 85% in the Hutt Valley, for example. Isn't it time we centralised this approach? Well, one of the things we've been doing is, uh, I have been doing, is asking the DHBs to get out there and make sure that they are doing the things we know works, which is like getting into the shopping malls. We're seeing it in South Auckland right now in response to the measles outbreak. Uh, into the shopping malls they go. Um, they're looking at opportunities in schools mm. uh, and so on. And that's what makes the difference. When people are alert to it, I think, unfortunately, people have become complacent because we haven't seen much of this deadly disease for a long time. But we know there's a simple cure. People need to get immunised. But you get my point, though, that there are, there are major issues with immunisation, you know, depending on where you go around the country. You know, a 20% difference, for example, between the Hutt Valley and Northland. So why not centralise the government approach to this? Take it out of the sole hands of the individual DHBs and centralise it. Well, it's, it's the, of course, it's the nurses that deliver the vaccine. Uh, it's, the, it's the pharmacists, it's the other healthcare professionals, and they, they live in the DHBs. That's where they live and work and breathe, and we need them to be out there doing this job for us. When you say pharmacists, should pharmacists be administering the MMR? Um, look, there, there is, I think, an opportunity there that's being explored currently. Um, the pharmacists are not connected to the National Immunisation Register, so there is a logistical challenge, but I know that's being looked at right now. How long would that take to roll out if, if you approve oh, look, that I, I, I'll wait for advice on that. Um, I, I think it is important that we register when people are vaccinated. Mm. It's a little more complex, I think, than I'd hoped, but I had asked that that be looked into. Uh, I mean, just, just hypothetically, though, are we talking about the sort of thing that would take a couple of months to institute, or is it the sort of thing where we could, if you oh, get the right I, advice, you could go in a couple I, of weeks? I can't get into hypotheticals. It's actually um, Julian Gender who leads on the vaccination area, um, but, uh, I mean, we know that the vaccine works, and actually the the issue right now is not that people can't access the vaccine, it's that they've been choosing not to uh, for whatever reason and I think a lot of it has to do with complacency but the science is clear, get vaccinated is the message and people are now doing it there's been uh, more than 57,000 uh, extra vaccines in the first half of this year mm -hmm. uh, in Auckland as compared to the year before and that's responding to this global situation where we know that measles cases are up 300% around the world on a year ago uh, this is a global epidemic, they've got epidemics in Australia, in Europe, in Canada, in uh, the United States, the Philippines, Hong Kong, um, and now uh, it's, it, we find it's coming in from overseas well, here. We've got to respond. In, so, in some of those jurisdictions, they have responded with, with incredible regulatory options. Um, for example, children who haven't had their vaccinations aren't allowed to go to daycares together. I've asked you this before. Given the events of the last couple of weeks, do you think it's time we introduced a no-jab no play. Rule. Well, the, um, what, what we've seen is that uh, DHBs can uh, send the message out that then uh, schools can refuse to take people, uh, and we've seen schools doing that in some instances. Um, it's, it's really tricky because we don't want to punish the kids for the choices mm. that their parents have made uh, in these instances, and actually those kids probably need uh, good education as much as anyone else. But we do really want to encourage everybody who can to go out and get the jab. Uh, it's the simple way to protect against this deadly disease. What about Having that right across all of our daycare centres, for example. Uh, having immunisation available? Yeah. No, no, no. Have, make, making immunisation mandatory for, for any child that's going to be at a daycare Well, centre. look, I, I, personally, I don't think that locking kids out uh, from those situations achieves anything long-term. We actually need to educate mm. the parents. Uh, we need to make it easier for people to get immunised um, and to understand mm. what it is to be protected. What do you make of these comments of your, your colleague, Willie Jackson? I'll read this quote to you. I do respect people who make that choice for their families, i.e. not vaccinating. 
I do get tired of them being labelled nutters and maniacs. Look, I believe in vaccines absolutely because you see what happens, but some families and some couples make reasonable decisions in regards to their kids. What do you uh, think of those look, comments? <laughs> I would respectfully disagree with Willie that that's a reasonable decision. Um, I, I don't think there's much point in getting angry at the anti-vaxxers. Um, they'll do what they will do. I think we need to appeal uh, to those people who, who haven't been exposed to the science. It's simple, clear science. Is that an irresponsible say, um, statement? Please, please get vaccinated because it's really that simple. The science is mm. clear. We need people to be getting vaccinated. This is this is a serious is that, disease. Is that an irresponsible comment from a, a member of parliament who, who represents oh, look, a large Maori contingency? I'd have to see that, that in context. Uh, Willie um, often uh, you know, talks around an issue. Um, I Pretty heard, clear I heard there. In, that, in that quote, uh, you saying that, you, you know, that mm. um, he, he believes in vaccination and thinks it's important, so um, I wouldn't want to take it out of context. OK, let's talk about cancer. Why has why the cancer plan taken as long as it has to introduce? Um, it's been important to work alongside the sector leaders to get it right, um, and we've been encouraged to do that, uh, including by cancer sufferers. I, I know Melissa Vining, um, with whom I've met a couple mm. of times, has said she thought it was important to take the time uh, to get this plan right, and that's what we've done. What difference will it make? for people with cancer? Well, we want everybody in New Zealand to be able to access the same high-quality cancer care, no matter who they are, no matter where they mm. live, basically. And we accept that we've inherited a long-term challenge there. Um, that, you know, people haven't been able to. It's been a postcode lottery. Mm. Um, and that's a challenge we've inherited, and we've decided we need some action to get on and fix so, it. So, again, I come back to that centralising question. Sh should we not centralise, then, our services for diabetes, for heart disease, for, for other things that cause great harm in New Zealand? Well, there's a, there's a health and disability uh, system review at play at the moment being led mm. by Heather Simpson and she's looking at questions like that. How do we structure the whole sector? Um, what do you we, think, we pledged with uh, the Cancer Action Plan, uh, we pledged sorry, as, as a Labour Party that we would deliver uh, a cancer agency. We've delivered that. That delivers the strong central leadership we need in cancer. Uh, the question of other areas, which I hear you ask, asking Jack, uh, I think is something that we'll look at in the context of that wider review. $20 million in new funding this year for, for Pharmac you have announced. Can you guarantee that cancer patients will actually benefit from new drug funding? Uh, and we, we've already had announcements on that. So um, we announced $10 million in the budget. We had Electinib um, and we had uh, Kid Siler uh, already but, announced. But by the Pharmac, nature of the relationship new... between Pharmac and... Sorry to, to interrupt. By, yes. by the nature of the relationship between Pharmac and Medsafe, I'm, I'm looking at the action plan here. Um, when it comes to assessing drugs, since they'll be assessing drugs together, it'll not necessarily result in more cancer medicines being funded. That's correct. Um, what, are you talking about the way in which that process works? It will be quicker to assess whether uh, drugs are suitable. But it won't necessarily result in more cancer medicines being funded. Uh, it will mean that cancer medicines that are evidence-based, that have that, that work, mm. will get funded sooner. But there's no guarantee that those will be the cancer medicines that are that, that cancer medicines will be funded. The, 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 nature, cancer the nature of the Pharmac model mm. is that every year they fund more drugs for more people. Uh, the exact nature of what those drugs are um, is ultimately Pharmac's choice. Do you oppose alcohol advertising? Um, I uh, personally believe that we need to do more in that area. It's something that I've asked for work to be done on, particularly in respect of kids. Um, I think currently uh, it's one of the areas that we need to, to look at because I think that um, the rules, which are a voluntary code, mm. Uh, mm. Uh, require that the majority of the time, the majority of the audience is not children, it, but not all of them. I, I asked Simon yeah. Bridges this as well, when National released their, their cancer plan. Mm. Should we bring in tougher regulations for junk food and children? Well, and these I, are all contributing factors, massive contributing factors to our cancer rates. Yeah, absolutely. I, I think these are things that, that do need to be looked at. I absolutely uh, think we need to look in that area. In fact, I've had conversations 
conversations with the um, Food Industry Task Force about what kinds of changes could be made mm. uh, there uh, because I think um, you know people in the food industry also want uh, their brands to be associated with healthy outcomes and uh, you know that that is something that people are willing to consider. I have to ask you about vaping. Are you comfortable with the Ministry of Health promoting vaping as an alternative to smoking? Uh, I think personally that if um, vaping is a gateway out of uh, other tobacco products, that's a good thing. If it's a gateway in, it's a bad thing. Um, and the the early evidence seems to be that it's a little less harmful than other tobacco but The early uh, evidence products. is also that you can't have one without the other, right? The, the cost of getting people off cigarettes and onto vaping is the collateral damage of young people who take up vaping who wouldn't have been smoking well, in the I, first place. I think place. that's why we need proper regulation. Currently there is no regulation around that. That's a long-term challenge we've inherited mm. as a government. Uh, we are putting uh, vaping regulation together right now. My colleague Jenny Salisa uh, I think is planning on introducing a bill to Parliament uh, in about a month's time, which will have uh, a really clear picture of what is allowed and what's not, and it will mirror what happens with tobacco more broadly. You won't be able mm. to market to young people. They're going to not have flavours, not have colours. Uh, those things that would appeal to young people uh, that we know are used uh, in lots of industries are going to be strictly regulated. It's interesting just to consider the comments from Matthew Tutaki, the head of the Māori Council, just in the last couple of minutes after watching our interview tonight. He said that the Māori Council will not back this approach to smoking versus vaping. Uh, tomorrow he will announce the council will come down hard on vaping. And he says directly to Philip Morris, we don't trust you, you have killed us. Do you trust Philip Morris? Uh, look, I, I think a healthy scepticism uh, of tobacco companies is warranted generally. Um, I, I, that's why I think we need firm regulation around this. Now I know they will oppose, and, and I have seen already oppose, some of the measures that we're planning on taking around advertising and so on. Uh, but I make no apology for that. Uh, we need a safety-based approach. And if this is being used as a quick smoking tool, that's fine. If it's a way into uh, other addictive uh, substances, tobacco related in particular, that's not fine. Health Minister David Clark, Namahi, thanks for your time. Thank you. Hey, send us your thoughts. We're on Twitter at ENZQ&A. You can post your comments on our Facebook page or email us at Q&A at tvnz.co.nz and don't forget the Q&A podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Next, my interview with the American diplomat leading the US campaign against Huawei. His warning, America's relationship with New Zealand will change if we allow telcos to work with the Chinese company on 5G. We need to ensure that we continue to maintain robust information sharing relationships with governments. At the same time, we also need to be able to protect the information uh, that is in our intelligence channels. Kia ora, welcome back. Fifth-generation mobile technology promises faster data speeds and better connectivity. Think self-driving cars, new-generation robotics, toothbrushes that know when you're sick. 5G networks are being rolled out all over the world. Vodafone is aiming to switch on here in December, Spark in July of next year. Spark's first 5G plan was, of course, rejected by our security agency, the GCSB, because of the involvement of the Chinese telco Huawei. I quote... A significant network security risk was identified. There's also been an intensive campaign by the US to convince allies to drop Huawei from any 5G upgrades. I spoke to the State Department's top cyber diplomat, Robert Strayer, and asked him if he has any evidence that Huawei is a security risk. Well, what we do know is that uh, the Chinese government can command Huawei to do anything that's in its interest. And over time, the Chinese government has been very active and intellectual property theft. And in fact, in last December, the United States and 14 other countries, including New Zealand, attributed 
a massive intellectual property theft to the Chinese Ministry of State Security, which was working with a company in China at the time. They hacked uh, global managed service providers and cloud providers in order to provide that intellectual property to their own companies. We also know they've, they've, uh, they've caused the rerouting of data around the world to go through China when it should have gone through other mechanisms in uh, the global internet routing. But your main concerns with Huawei are future concerns. You are concerned that if this 5G core technology is introduced around the world, that in the future, the Chinese government will effectively order Huawei to spy on foreign governments. Right. We know that they have the intent, which I just mentioned. We also know that they will have the capability and legal authority through their national intelligence law and other laws. And if they build out our 5G technology, which isn't quite yet deployed, they will then have the opportunity to either cause there to be espionage or to undermine all the critical infrastructure that's going to be built on top of those 5G mm. connections. That infrastructure is going to include water and power distribution. Your concern is about this Chinese law, but Huawei points out it is run under a cooperative ownership model. Huawei has been advised by its legal teams that because of the nature of its ownership, it is under absolutely no obligation to spy on behalf of the Chinese government, even if ordered to do so in the future. Right. Well, what we do know about China is that the Communist Party is involved in every company in China, and they're also involved in the board of directors of Huawei. So really, at the end of the day, it's not about what the law says. It's going to be about what the Chinese Communist Party determines. The law is just a manifestation of what is reality in China. Let's talk about the, the, what you see as system vulnerabilities. The UK Cyber Security Evaluation Centre, which is, of course, run by uh, Britain's uh, security services, has reviewed and failed to find Chinese government interference within the Huawei technologies. Well, they actually also in that report found there to be serious and systemic defects in their software engineering and cybersecurity competence. They found over 500 vulnerabilities in the types of uh, infrastructure, uh, hardware and software that they were looking at at the time. So there are major problems with that uh, infrastructure. We would say that they not created just a backdoor, which is a surreptitious way to access it, but what they created is a bug door. That is so many bugs in the system that it's easy to deny the ability, to deny that they have introduced those in order to cause vulnerabilities. What you're concerned about are engineering flaws. Do you have the same concerns when it comes to US-run companies? So we're concerned about all information communication technology companies and their need to improve their cybersecurity, their ability to patch vulnerabilities. And what it really comes down to is do you trust these companies to, to address vulnerabilities when they do occur? And will they be vigilant in addressing those and not working with the, uh, an authoritarian government that does not adhere to the rule of law uh, in its possibility of being mandating of its companies to take action. Why should other governments trust the U.S. on this stuff? If we take a, you know, a broad look at it, you could look at the likes of um, U.S.-run tech companies, Facebook, for example, which have been shown to be pretty loose when it comes to personal data in the past. And, of course, the U.S., spies on other countries as well? Well, I, th I think you're, there's a lot of whataboutism here. I'm comparing things that are, that are not equal. You know, we realize every country is going to make its own sovereign decision about how they're going to protect their 5G networks. The best that we can do, and actually it's our duty to do, mm. is to share with them our views about vulnerabilities related to the systems and the potential threat that, it, that could happen by having a government that does not have a rule of law system be the vendor for their 5G technology. What have you shared with the New Zealand government? 
Well, just as I'm explaining here, we've shared that type of information with the New Zealand government. And what has been the New Zealand government's response? I'm not going to comment on our back and forth over these issues. We have an abiding, strong security partnership. We have frank discussions all the time on a whole range of issues beyond 5G, all types of cybersecurity issues and much, uh, you know, very large global issues at the mm. same time. So, so what if New Zealand does allow Huawei 5G technology? So uh, we've said that all around the globe, we need to ensure that we continue to maintain robust information sharing relationships with governments. At the same time, we also need to be able to protect the information uh, that is in our intelligence channels. So we will reassess how we share information if there are deployed uh, untrusted vendors in 5G networks. So it's reasonable to assert there would be some repercussions if New Zealand was to allow for this technology? Well, all we want to say is that we are would have to reassess how we protect that information. We want to maintain the most robust relationship, particularly with a key ally like New Zealand. And, and, and what other options would there be for sharing information if that were the case? I, I really can't go into all the technical ways that that could be addressed, mm. but um, fundamentally, the question would be why make it more difficult to share information uh, because you have an introduced an untrusted vendor into the network. Would it potentially affect New Zealand's role in the Five Eyes network? Absolutely not. They are part of the Five Eyes. They will, you know, in perpetuity be part of the Five Eyes. Okay. To what extent? Robert, is this about protectionism? Of course, we know that the US and China are in a trade war at the moment and effectively in a battle for technological supremacy. Many analysts say that Huawei is a long way ahead of US-led companies when it comes to this type of 5G technology. Yeah. Well, first I'd point out, I think the analysts that are saying that are actually Huawei or paid by Huawei to say so. We actually think that the other major vendors, including Ericsson, Nokia, and Samsung, which are Swedish, Finnish, and South Korea, and they're not American, so we're not benefiting an American company by making this case to our friends around the world, are on an equal footing with Huawei in the amount of technology, in the quality of their technology. The United States uh, telecom operators are rolling out 5G and commercial deployments in more than two dozen cities, already leading the world in that. And they're only using those three trusted vendors, not using Chinese vendors. So we think that it's not credible at all to say that a country needs to use Huawei in order to be mm. able to rapidly deploy 5G infrastructure. It's interesting to con consider the words of John Suffolk, who's the former UK government chief IT advisor. He is now Huawei's chief security advisor, so he is paid by Huawei. But he says uh, this push is absolutely motivated by politics and certainly not security concerns. What would be your response to that? Well, our, our concerns are genuine about the importance of uh, 5G security and about the real risk that Huawei could be commanded by the Chinese government to take a number of actions that are not in anyone's interest. It's also important to, re to recognize with regard to Huawei, they have a long history of untrusted activity. They have been a long history of uh, corrupt practices around the world, as well as intellectual property theft themselves. They're under indictment for intellectual property theft in the United States, as well as violating Iran sanctions. Those are activities of a company that really can't be trusted, that does not abide by the same types of practices we expect to see from Western companies and how they do business and do business in the most ethical manners possible.
That's Robert Strayer, the Deputy Assistant Secretary for State for Cyber and International Communications. Now, Spark does have the option of going back to the GCSB with a plan that addresses its concerns. Today, Spark told us it's still working through what possible mitigations it could provide, and it is yet to make a decision on whether or when it would submit a revised proposal. We're keen to hear what you think on that issue, and I'll have some of your feedback shortly. But next, it may seem unlikely, but the metals industry wants to focus on well-being. When your government starts talking a different language, you best start to learn that language mm. and become fluent. Kia ora, welcome back. Businesses talk a lot about sustainability, but what does that really mean for all of us? The metals industry doesn't sound like a clean, green kind of crowd, but they're one of the first industries in New Zealand to take on Treasury's living standards framework and put well-being at the core of what they do. Dr Troy Coyle is the chief executive of the Heavy Engineering Research Association. She explained to me what the change actually means. Obviously financial capital is easy to measure, we know what GDP contribution we make, what employment contribution we make. The human side is probably easy as well because we're talking about developing staff and innovation. Mm. Um, but the, the natural capital probably is something that companies are becoming more au fait with in terms of measuring, but the social capital was a real challenge for us. Um, a big part of the social capital um, development in terms of the framework is around levels of trust. But I suppose there's no point in a company saying, well, you know, we've got a lot of trust in the community and we're employing a lot of people and we're really environmentally responsible, but hey, we're making no money. Well, that's true, but I think probably the reverse is also true that uh, if you're not looking after all of those four capitals simultaneously, there's going to be a change in the way the public is perceiving mm. your organisational company and probably a shift. And perhaps it's in the long-term financial interest and in, in the interest of financial capital to make sure that those other capitals are performing as strongly as possible as well. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. I think that um, even now when we um, think of it more in a self-serving way, the, uh, the, one of the other rationales for us doing this work was that um, when your government starts talking a different language, you best start to learn that language mm. and become fluent because if you're involved in government contracts, which our industry is through building and construction and infrastructure projects, we actually need to become competitive and mm. using the same language. When I think of the metals industry, I don't automatically think of an industry that's going to do well in natural capital and environmentalism. How did the industry go when you measured it against the natural capitalism? I think that uh, it's fair to say there are areas in natural capital where we're doing really well and there are areas where we need to improve. Um, an example where we're doing, doing really well is in terms of life cycle analysis so steel is a very resilient product so it's got a long lifetime that Im improves mm. its performance in terms of environmental performance but we also do need to acknowledge that we have got an embodied carbon issue and the industry isn't scared to acknowledge that and look at opportunities to improve yeah, just it. Tell, tell me about that because I, I saw a submission to the Productivity Commission in which Blue Scope Steel said there are currently, there's currently no technology anywhere in the world that allows for steel to be made from raw materials without coal. Is that true? That is true. There are pilot plants um, being established elsewhere in the world that are looking at hydrogen as a reductant for steel. Um, but at the moment, coal is the only feasible option. What sort of things could New Zealand steel do, for example, to reduce its carbon footprint? 
Uh, it could look at um, the ways that it's reusing its energy. So already it's using, reusing 60% of the energy um, is actually co-generated mm. on site. Uh, it could look at other options to do that, potentially working with the channel to develop offsetting programs. Right. I, I, on the offsetting subject, you know, I see a couple of years ago that the Morgan Foundation named New Zealand Steel as the country's fifth largest buyer of fraudulent carbon credits, which would suggest that it could be greenwashing some of its environmental issues. Yeah, as I said, I can't really speak on New Zealand Steel's behalf. They're one member of 600 in our organisation. But I definitely think that um, they have done a lot of work. Um, their carbon footprint is decreasing year on year. We have to um, look at, on the one hand, it is a carbon-intensive material. On the other hand, it's a vitally important component of the new technologies, wind, geotech, solar. Um, so. Mm. That has to balance out. That is Dr. Troy Coyle, the Chief Executive of the Heavy Engineering Research Association. Stick around on Q&A. We have your feedback on tonight's program next. Kia ora, welcome back to Q&A. A lot of vaping ads on TV tonight, aren't there? This is the thing about Q&A, always very topical. We've had so much feedback on our Philip Morris interview this evening. Brendan McKenna tweeted... I wonder if there would be any support for a binding national referendum on making tobacco and related products, including vaping, an illegal Class A drug. Alexander Douglas said our lungs are not designed to function in a saturated environment. Common sense alone dictates this will cause health problems. And Maxine Gay said vaping is safer than cigarettes, doesn't make it safe or desirable. Philip Morris is promoting vaping to make money, not to provide a social service. Tim Pate tweeted, if Philip Morris really wants to take the moral high ground and is convinced vaping is significantly less harmful, why hasn't it stopped producing cigarettes, or at least given a date when they will cease production? Thank you so much for your messages. We will continue the debate on our Facebook page. Tonight is up next. Nā mihi i nā karere. Thanks for your contributions. Thanks to the Q&A team. Hey te wiki. We'll see you next Monday evening at 9.30. Q&A is made with the support of New Zealand On Air.